the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. 602-508-0960 is the number. And as it's a third hour on Tuesday, we have half of Team Holman here. Last week, we had the other half of Team Holman. We had Hugh Holman in last week. We usually have Hugh and Lewis. This week, we have Lewis. Lewis, welcome back. Good to see you. Seth, it's always a delight. You want to tell the audience why you weren't here last week? Well, I actually was just married, uh, not this past Saturday, but the Saturday before, and I spent the last week honeymooning in glorious Portland, Oregon. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, just peacefully abs- honeymooning. Oh, it was, it was, it was <laughs> <Okay>. lovely. No <laughs> restaurants were open. Everything was shut down. But you know, it was it was really lovely for us. We just sort of, you know, got stayed in together and took walks and you know just really got to spend time with one another. Well, I was privileged to be at your wedding, and I a delight in, in 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 having been invited. So thank you, and again, uh, publicly congratulations on uh, your nuptials, and uh, may you have a wonderful, wonderful life ahead with your new. Your new bride, whose family I got to know as well, which was lovely. <laughs> love getting to know people. I love backstories. Don't you love backstories? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's 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 an interesting country, isn't it? It really is, you know. And and one of the things that was so fascinating to me as uh, as we were in Oregon actually was was traveling around and and of all of the people I spoke to, no one really seemed to know what was going on. <laughs> yeah, right. But everyone had the sense that the media was lying to them. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it was really interesting, yeah. actually. And, and so that that I think was the part, at least you know, not having nothing to do with my new wife, of course, that that really kind of gave me a little bit of hope is that people at least get the sense, I suspect, that they're being talked to in a way that is operationalized and somewhat dishonest, yeah. right? Yeah. Preferring uh, what shall we say, uh, preferring fact to truth. Sure. Sure. Fact to truth. I love that. All right. I have a lot to do with you. Um, So the honeymoon's over and you're back in the hot seat. We're going to talk COVID. We're going to talk politics. We're going to talk elections. I got to take a call as well that I think you'll find interesting from someone who emailed me earlier and I told him to call in. But first, uh, Lewis Holman, let me uh, identify you as the managing partner of Inside Analytics. Your website is insideanalyticsllc.com and Inside is spelled I-N-C-I-T-E. Um, you're not a sponsor. I just, I think it's important people know how to reach you and, um, know where you, from whence you come. There's a new, uh, shutdown, lockdown, COVID panic mentality that I was surprised to see. I, um, have been wrong about a few things and I'll be wrong about one or two more in my lifetime. I'm sure one of the things I was wrong about was I thought the story would end one way or the other, but you know, end on November 4th, and it didn't. What gives? I'm What's going on? Definitely was in this boat, too. I, I certainly feel as though I, I'm deserving of some egg on my face for this. And maybe it's because I, you know... I, it's the Yogi Berra rule. The hardest thing to predict is the future. You know, that's that's very fair. <laughs> that's what uh, um, but, but to me, the, the big deal here is that, you know... As much as we all would like this to be done now that the election is over and we can stop politicizing it, the fact remains is that it it has been politicized. And so we're stuck in these two 
sort of warring camps who have irre- completely irreconcilable views on reality with one another, right? They, they just cannot agree on, is this safe? Is this dangerous? Should we even be outside right now? Weirdly, in a field of science. Right, yes. Uh, uh, but so what's going on, though, well, I only think- Only one kind of science. Is that even if, if we wanted to unwind this, if we wanted to calm everyone down, even if like mass vaccines were rolling out today, right- we would still have to be undoing all of the narrative and all of the fear, not even just on this, just the sheer logistical challenges of getting this together, but but we would have to convince all of these people that their lives are not existentially at risk anymore. Right. And that, to me, is probably going to be a really big challenge. As even much with as, a vaccine. Right. And so even if even if the Biden administration comes in and wants to to roll things around and have a more sort of calm attitude to things for this next year as we try to assess things um, – I don't know that their own supporters will let them because so much of this now, I think, has become a game of more than anything else expectations management. And I'm, I'm struck by the fact, frankly, that medicine, whenever our knowledge of it breaks down, whether it's a rare you know, disease or cancer or something else, it, it moves from being a course with a cure to really just the management of expectations. Management of expectations are huge. And I think in all fairness have been blown away, I think, by – the ability that we have possibly three vaccines online within a year. I mean, I think that's an expectation that had to be or was somewhat tried to be managed that we blew we, uh, we, Absolutely. We blew away in, 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 in great with great optimism. There is still, though, and, and this is part of what worries me about the managing of these expectations is that the rollout and the delivery and the logistic wherewithal of, of getting all of these things in place upon actually – you know, getting a vaccine through is going to be enormous, right. right? The smart people that I try to listen to suspect that this is not going to be dealt with before Q4 mm-hmm. of next year. And so that means that we're looking at a whole nother year of this, okay. potentially, this fervor and this insanity. All right, which- let's talk about the fervor. And then, Michael, please don't go away. I do want to take your call on the political stuff. Let's talk about fervor. Um, irreconcilable differences over how to view what we're told should be case of science, a case of yes and no, black and white. Let me make a quick point here. You know, you can have all of the information about something that you want, but information does not give you how to act on something. You can have all the information of how a field is laid out, but you still is not going to tell you anything about what's the right way to walk through it. So here's how I see it. I think you see it closely to this. I don't want to speak for you. We have a virus. It's novel. It's new. And you have a chance of getting it. That chance is fluid, depending on what surveys and studies you're looking at. If you get it and you're under 80, you have a 99.9 plus percent chance of being just fine. Just fine. Any of that disputable? Does anyone dispute that? What I just said? Well, uh, uh, the mortality rate to a degree, but I, I wouldn't pick at you more than a percent, like a tenth of a percentage point or two. Okay. So you have a better survival rate than almost any other disease we talk about in this country, including skin cancer. Correct. Much higher survival rate. That, these, these are just raw facts. In response, we have done things in this country and to this country – and to other countries. That would be unimaginable. Unimaginable ago. with diseases that are far more dangerous and lethal. Right. How can we 
not have a reconciliation over this concept. What is it about this that we have done things? Just take children in schools, for example. We have far higher fatality rates for children with the seasonal influenza, far higher. We have never masked children. We have never quarantined children. We have never taken children's temperatures before they go to school. We have never shut down schools. What made this different? Well, I, I think the first part of it is the, the bifurcated media environment, right? So first of all, there is no corner of this where anyone really is looking at really good consistent sets of statistics, you know, time series for the entire pandemic back and forth so that they can really evaluate the changes over time and look at this in like a sober and judicious manner. As we've railed on, you know, on this show in many, many episodes, most often the statistics are presented in whichever way is the most fear-inducing. Correct. An so, increase in cases of 23%. Whoa! Right. We have more. We had more positive t- cases recently than in any other day over the course of the pandemic, mm-hmm. even in the very, very height of it in July. Mm-hmm. However, we're now testing about 50% more, but no one's talking about that. Mm-hmm. There is a reason we are seeing more cases. It's because we're looking more thoroughly. Mm-hmm. It's not that the virus is suddenly changing and becoming you know, much, much deadlier in this dark winter, we are told. Um, and so... If anything, it's becoming less deadly. Correct. Yes. Uh, so, you know, as, as to how did all of this come about, you know, it's... Very slowly and then all at once mm-hmm. is sort of mm-hmm. kind of the answer I come to. You have to, you know, give people the ability to disagree with one another without coming into contact. And I think that social media does that beautifully, right? You know, we can have warring camps who believe entirely opposite things, completely unconstrained by the fact that, you know, that they even may geographically be close to one another. Like right? that doesn't even bear into this anymore. We are removed from one another completely. We also, as we, we, we know, as we, we think about as conservatives, we've got a breakdown in social institutions and the other types of things that might link us more together, right? And so sort of ironically, we're disconnecting ourselves from one another as a response to being incredibly disconnected from one another and unable to, to sort of suss things out as a community and logically. Let me, let, me, um, let me pause on that as we go into the break, and we'll get Michael in as well, who, who, is, uh, who I invited to call in on a question he emailed me. But I also want to ponder over the break the question of science, listening to the scientists. Virology is not the only science at play here. And I'm quoting a doctor on NBC yesterday. We are now seeing increases in previously controlled chronic conditions like hypertension, type 2 diabetes, migraines, Psychological and behavioral vulnerabilities probed by pandemic fear are surfacing with studies now showing a threefold increase in depressive symptoms and a 900% increase in calls to suicide hotlines, increased child abuse, and a 42% increase in drug overdose deaths. Think about that for a second. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Our guest is Lewis Hallman, taking your calls at 602-508-0960. We'll, do, uh, we'll take calls on anything politics or COVID-related. Uh, um, but I wanted to finish off with uh, a COVID dis- discussion with you, Lewis, before I opened it, um, before I started taking calls. So listen to the science. I, I think you can listen to the science and come to every conclusion I've drawn, which is pretty close to every conclusion you've drawn. 
Um, but there is um, other science that's not being listened to seemingly at all. Um, the psychological and the psychiatric uh, science, the um, pediatric science, the economic science. Economics is a science people tend to forget. Your the dad dismal would, science, well, but yes. Your dad would be quick to remind us that it's a, it's a good science, right? Um, we have put too much faith in people we've never heard of and people who were never elected on the one hand. So th- that's funny because it, that. it actually reminds me, I, I said something to you just before the show started uh, that I think fits into this theme perfectly. And what I said to you was that the blue check mark is the sumptuary law of our age. So sumptuary laws in the Middle Ages were basically laws that dictated what rank of aristocracy you had to be to wear certain things, right? Because it... In, Back, or eat, right? Or, you know, or eat certain things, exactly. That's right. where the word sumptuous comes from. Yes, yes. Uh, and so you, know, you, you couldn't wear furs unless you were of this class. And so it's, it's interesting to me that on social media there are these, these indicators that now serve in basically the same role. Because if you were just looking at people's social media profiles, they're relatively you – know, you can't really tell one from the other terribly easily. However, the blue check mark is an instant and unmistakable signifier of designated rank and intellectual status by these Validation. people. These are your your generic Twitter experts, right? And so when we're told to listen to experts, we're not actually talking about experts. These are the people we're talking about, the ordained new clergy of our times. Jake Tapper. Yes. Okay. Among others. Among others. I mean, but that's someone who we're talking about gets a blue check. Right. Whereas Alex Berenson would have a harder time. Correct. Okay. And that's why people like Alex are always calling out the blue checks, these experts, this reliance on experts. It's something weird about self-government. Maybe this is a good transition to to the calls on politics. It's something odd about a surrender of self-government, though, when we surrender that to experts, right? There's a house divided even in the expertise, which is odd. I remember a conversation with someone a couple months back saying one of the um, most disturbing things to him was that the president of the United States (coughs) was actively um, casting doubt on people in his own administration, scientists in his own administration. On the one hand, there is some truth to the fact that he was – But on the other, he brought in other scientists he agreed with, someone like, say, a Scott Atlas, who was drummed out. I think he just was forced to resign yesterday and denounced by his own school for not following the other scientists. We surrender too much when we surrender to science. Your dad was making the point last week, I think you know the argument, the case, that science is inherently amoral. Yeah, he, and st- it can he stole be very- my line about yeah. Mengele, I think. He stole it from you, maybe so. <laughs> but it, amoral at best, yes. immoral at worst. We cannot and- trust it to give us direction in life. It would be sort of like uh, trust. Like markets are wonderful tools, right? But markets are really bad tools. You know, they're great tools to solve a specific problem, right? I want to build a widget to do something. Markets are good at that. Markets are really, really bad at telling you what problems to solve. Mm-hmm. Science, similarly, excellent at solving problems, gives us no moral or practical advice on how to pick the problems that we want to attack. Mm-hmm. That's our fundamental issue here. And so, you know, we can we can listen to any arbitrary collection of scientists, but it would be really helpful if we came together, used our common sense and our 
sort of policy discretion and came and, and thought about what facets of this do we need to pay particular attention to? Because it's not just going to be one category of science. Well, that's As what leads saying, us to where economics. we are in some respects on the election today. Do you think the fact that we can't seem to know anything for sure or we tell ourselves that, do you think that leads in part to great distrust, including distrust over the election results? Is there a connection there? There may not be. So, yes, and, and for a couple of ways. So first of all, it, it certainly does leave the opening, whether from ignorance or malice, that someone can always just take the other side and run you know, with something that is, that is not truthful, right? And, and that, though, I think is, is more... Uh, it trotted out than than is usually the case. Uh, so so what I what I mean is is that I I think that most people are generally earnest. Most people generally want what's good for the country. The problem really comes down to is that we have very different ideas on what is good for the country, right? We yeah, we have never defined the good, right? And so of course then you know we we've got ranked disagreements. And again, a lot of these issues come down to the fact that our ideas of good are, are again mutually inconclusive. Someone who thinks you know, stable, secure borders are the best good is going to clash irreconcilably with someone who thinks that free movement of peoples right. is the best right. good. Right, right. So when someone says, well, Joe Biden or someone else, Barack Obama, if you want, you heard it more, I think, with Barack Obama, hates America. It's not actually fair to say that. They have a totally different view of what America should be. Right. They may not hate America. They may hate your America. Right. Right. They hate what we think of as America. Potentially. And that's why, to me, the queen of the sciences should really be political philosophy, because <clears throat> until we come to an agreement on the good, what the good is, what the beautiful is, what the non-vulgar is, any of these seemingly value statements, until we have an agreement on that, and it doesn't have to be unanimous, but it should be overwhelming. It's also why virtue ethics should be taught more right. instead of uh, right. most of the new crap that's, right. that's coming out. Right, right, Until we do that, until we have that conversation and agreement, see, I think the left understands this. I think the left has done a really good march through the educational institutions to disrupt a lot of what we used to know, things we used to agree on. I think they've upset a lot of those apple carts, and we were absent from that conversation, debate, or fight. We just absented ourselves or didn't recognize Or in it. my case, didn't exist. It didn't exist. I, I wasn't around for it. Uh, right. I'm... Okay. Yeah, no, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. But you are how old? Uh, 27. So you are the ideal age product of the result of all of this. You, 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 you fought against the tide, but it took a generation. We say it takes a generation, right. and it took a generation. And we are churning out 4 million high school graduates a year and 4 million college graduates a year, 80% of whom are steeped in a view that has tried to upset the consensus of what we thought the good was. And the piper is now singing that tune. That's also, what I think. It's also interesting Not that... you, but your generation. It's also very interesting that, that all of these courses then are are mandatory. ASU, for instance, mandates that you take culture courses. Um, oh. I'd actually, I'd really like to say, so let's make a little more longer point on sure. this when we come back. Yeah, let's do fine. it. Let's hold that thought. We'll be right back. Excellent. You like our Christmas music? Welcome back. <laughs> 
<laughs> Seth leaves. The show. We're introducing it slowly. We did, right? We were, we're, we're. No, it's not. It can't be every segment. No, if it's everywhere, then it's not. Then it's not Christmas, right? You have to have a distinction. We'll get back to that in just a moment. Lewis Hallman is our guest. Lewis, you wanted to make a point about. Um, so we were talking about the rollout of uh, of education and the fact that you know virtue ethics has sort of been kicked from it, and that that conservatives have really been out in sort of out in the cold for the last I don't know three, four, five decades of talking about educational policy. And the point that I wanted to make about that is is was this, and it's what is the best way to brainwash someone. Yeah. So for those of you that don't know, it's actually to get them to write. Okay. You get them to write things from their own perspective. And then what's very fun about that is that your brain doesn't like it if you've done actions that are incongruous with yourself. So you will actually then, if you've spent a lot of time writing things, even if you know that they're not true, you, you may eventually come to hold to be sympathetic to those beliefs. Let me give you an example. So during the Korean War, or, or after the Korean War, excuse me, uh, some American, uh, I, I believe, uh, uh, I think there might have been enlisted men in the Navy were captured in, in North Korea. And they were they were then taken and they were made to write letters, basically. And they, they started, well, they had to start slow. It was actually not confessions. Oh, okay. It was their thoughts on, on America and the American regime. Okay. And so they would first be asked to, in their letters, talk about one thing that they thought that America did did wrong or incorrectly, right? One moral failing. And then it would go a little farther. It would be, you know, uh, uh, explain why this, this war is an overreach, right? And then it'd be a little farther. Explain why all of American policy for the last 50 years has been an error. And, you know, it just, just keeps going and, and slowly ratcheted up further and further. And what's amazing is, is that now in universities, no matter what the degree is, whether it's economics, computer science, whatever, people are being asked and obligated to take these courses where they are required to learn uh, uh, radical leftist talking points effectively. I had and they to do this in law school. I know exactly what you're talking about. They must regurgitate them yeah. in the affirmative. Yeah. You Every first-year law student had to do a course, in my case, it was called Law Culture and... I study statistics and economics. The one class I have left before I finish my degree is a gender studies class. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. The funny thing is... No one in those classes is forced to take a course in statistics. You know, it would be really nice if we could if we could get the converse to work out, but I'm not really holding my breath. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Um, the propaganda is uh, – that's the word we're talking about. It. I mean that's how you brainwash them t- until they do propaganda. And, of course, this has been perfected yeah. over time. And, of course, we have a lot of examples of it from the Vietnam War. By the way, speaking of the Vietnam War, Bill, remind me, I have to do a tribute to Bruce Hershenson. That's not a name you would know. It's a name your dad would know. Bruce Hershenson was a fixture in Los Angeles who was a commentator on TV and ran for Senate. I, maybe your dad may have even worked on the campaign or volunteered on it. In 1992, almost defeated Barbara Boxer in 1992. Um, and a scholar at the Claremont Institute, and then Pepperdine, just a great, great man, died uh, yesterday at the age of 88. I want to do a tribute to him later. But the reason you had me thinking about him is he wrote some of the best history on Vietnam. Um, a lot of people say, you know, have, have uh, you know, the propagandistic view 
of Vietnam, and he wrote a counter history that that's just one of the better ones. But that's interesting what you say. You get students to write things, and then you slowly guide them into the way you're going to get the A or the A minus, right, yeah. is to have the certain perspective. Well, you just make it, you know, you, you make it an automatic F if you write the negative case. Right. Makes it very easy to force people to take your side. How, how strong is this, oh, you know, how strong is this in our public education system? I mean, it, it seems overwhelmingly so to me, right? It, it is a literal requirement. You cannot get the sheet of lambskin and graduate without doing it. There is no way around it. As, as far as and it, you it, resisted it, how you were not victim to it because why you knew how to play the game? Oh no no I still have to I don't actually have my degree and I got one more class to go which is literally <laughs> a gender studies class which I will be taking in this this spring. Yeah so. yeah yeah you bet. I All tried right. really hard I didn't quite get away with it. Let me invite Michael to call back. Bill's making penance for no Christmas music. Here's some six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Let me put in a word for my favorite product balance of nature. I take it every day. Tens of thousands of vital nutrients, great stuff, locked into vegetarian capsules, one serving, and you're good to go, boosting your immunity, improving your health and your energy. And boy, do they have a great deal. Free shipping. That's the part I like best, but also 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. Well, all year and then some. Call them at 800-246-8751 or go to balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code balance. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If you're in the market to buy a house or in the market to sell your house, I want you to call my friend James Wexler. He is a friend, and a lot of friends I know have used him and think of as highly of him as I do. James Wexler of JMG Real Estate guarantees to sell your home at market value, or he will pay you the difference. He can also make you an upfront guaranteed offer on your home within 24 hours if you prefer. He sells more homes over $500,000 than any other agent in Phoenix and Scottsdale. He has a special private database that he uses, and he has that combined with a proprietary and state-of-the-art marketing technology. He's just great, all around great. Give James Wexler a call at 480-386-0711 or visit him online at jameswexler.com. That's jameswexler, W-E-X-L-E-R.com. Lewis Holman, so the thing we haven't talked about yet today, and I wanted to race with you because you're so good at methodology and statistics and analysis the election. The elephant in the room. The elephant in the room. The election. Um, again, very strong opinions <laughs> that seem to be irreconcilable. I get it. When I had made the point, the nature of it, but I had made the point in the last hour tentatively, and I want to think it through. I hadn't said it before. Maybe I hadn't thought it before. But I'll try and restate it a little more articulately. The case for widespread massive fraud doesn't have one big thing we can point to that's obvious and convincing. Neither, however, does the case that there was no fraud or that the case that this was all just fine and dandy normal stuff. The case and ex the, the arguments, for example, about arguments, the allegations about the boxes that showed up in the cover of night, statistical disparities, 
there's not one thing they've pointed to to say nothing to see here, all fine and dandy and normal as well. Your take. So uh, I, I think that we probably agree quite a bit on this. Okay. Um, where, where I've kind of ultimately have sort of fallen is that I have to be an empiricist about everything. I'm, I'm just really kind of obnoxious that way. And so while I am eminently willing and able to be convinced that massive voter fraud happened, robbing Donald Trump of the election, the we're missing that big silver bullet right. that you talked about. And that's the word I need. And yeah. frankly, you know, I've, I've investigated many of the different claims. There are a few that I just can't get information on or or or, or can't or, um, otherwise suss out to a degree that would satisfy my curiosity. But so, for instance, there was one that went around quite a lot about uh, uh, using Benford's law to try and predict fraud. And the issue with that, uh, long story short, is that Benford's law is a tool that lets you detect uh, when data has been manipulated, but you have to have a data set that spans what are called multiple orders of magnitude, right? You have to have different uh, uh, different scales of the data, so from tens to hundreds to thousands of, of records in each data set. The problem is, is that when all of those the, the analyses were done to try and detect fraud, specifically in Chicago, for instance, the precincts that they were looking at were all between, were all basically in the same order of magnitude. So you didn't have the the requirement that you actually need for a Benford's analysis to actually work and be meaningful. And so it looked like voter fraud, according to some people, was in fact just spurious, and it was just a bad application of the of the test. Okay. And the problem is, is that that kind of thing happens a lot, and it's very, very hard unless you actually know how to do it correctly to spot it. Um, and so, I have not been become overwhelmingly convinced okay. that something happened. I, I remain utterly skeptical, though, and and I do think that things smell fishy. But again, well, but to the case of fraud, let me restate it a little strong, more strongly, a little stronger. The boxes showing up overnight, in, especially in Philadelphia. They don't have a good answer for that. Right. That has yet to be answered. Um, so neither do I have, you know, uh, security camera footage of the alley right. where they showed up so that I can see someone dropping them off. Right. Right. I but, have second and third half of it, allegations of things that have happened right, right. that I just can't sort through. And 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 so what I think we have is a, is, is a... <sighs> In some respects, the last – I think we have underestimated, we Republicans have underestimated the degree to which and the heat with which 60-plus million Americans doubted the legitimacy of Donald Trump's presidency and election. And leading lights are on record. Jimmy Carter, a former president, is on record saying he's not a legitimate president. Hillary Clinton is on record several times saying he's not a legitimate president. Joe Biden himself agreed with a questioner who asked, who said Donald Trump is not a legitimate president. I think we underestimate the degree to which Democrats thought that. And I think at the peril of our union, at the peril of perhaps moving forward, Democrats should not take for granted how heatedly we think actually there is illegitimacy because the case for it now is stronger than their case i actually think the, the a, case for an illegitimate biden election is is to me much stronger than they ever had that donald trump was illegitimate i don't disagree with yeah. that uh, but I, I will say that that's a really interesting point though because because you're, you're very right in that the left initially did this whole you know he's not my president right. denial type issue right. 
And so in some sense, it actually contextual. It makes a lot of sense to me to see their reaction now because from their side, if I'm trying to be at least a little empathetic about this, if I were them, I probably would have heard, yes, he is your president. We're not listening to you. Be quiet. Yeah. And so in their minds, all they're doing is the exact same thing that was done to them. Yes, he is your president. We're not listening to your concerns. Sit down and be quiet. Right. And so in this kind of tit-for-tat universe where we can't actually get at the empirical evidence, right, it's just always going to devolve into this kind of clown shoes, you know, voice of the mob style nonsense, I think. Yeah, I think it will, too. Um, you'll do a concluding thought when we come back? I think so. Okay, great. Thank you. Welcome back, and thank you for uh, sharing some of your afternoon with us. Lewis Holman, um, thank you for coming in today, as always, on Tuesdays. If you uh, didn't get a chance to... Uh, Get on the on the on the air as a caller. Call back tomorrow. We'll go right to you. You want to share a concluding thought you had? Sure. Actually, before I dive into that, I was reminded that I need to share with everyone that the uh, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine trials that we've been hearing much about uh, that are touting ninety to ninety five percent efficacy against COVID. All of those trials currently have sample sizes of under a hundred patients that they've been tried on, and not including that information with with the reporting has been egregious oversight, I think, on the media. I think they're... That oh, we'll have them, more mistrust. Exactly, okay. and, and over-promising. Great. But anyway, to the the final thought that I had was a quote that has been just rattling around in my mind for ages during this pandemic and during the election and all of the craziness. And it's, it's from Edward R. Murrow, and mm-hmm. it's something like this. We must not confuse dissent with disloyalty. We must remember always that accusation is not proof and that conviction depends upon evidence and due process of law. We will not walk in fear one of another. We will not be driven by fear into an age of unreason. If we dig deep in our history and our doctrine and remember that we are not descended from fearful men, not from men who feared to write, to speak, to associate and to defend causes that were for the moment unpopular. That's really good. Will you send it to me? Uh, It reminds me of something a British parliamentarian said about two months ago where we treat opinion as fact. And um, that, that, to her, that was the great folly of our time. And Please. anecdote is science. Yeah, right? Anecdote as science. Until tomorrow. God bless you all. I'm Seth Liebson. Class dismissed.